We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McGeckron, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. This episode's guest is an artist and author. If you are familiar with the best-selling novel, The Time Traveler's Wife, then you are familiar with her work. Audrey Niffenegger has a perspective on our creative selves, creative practices, and our creative minds, all of the things Eager to Know listeners love to hear about. Our episode begins with us talking about creativity in children. There are children who are obviously on a path to somewhere. And those are the children that get kind of noticed and praised. What's always interesting to me are not the people who are a slam dunk, who are just so obviously destined for some kind of creative greatness, but the people who are not so obvious and maybe what their special genius is, it's kind of hidden. And then somehow they get there anyway. Those, those people I have a special soft spot for. Do you think that is something that eventually will happen to most people if they just stay with something and not get discouraged and are consistent and persistent? I don't think necessarily staying with a thing is the key. The key is a sensitivity to asking the right questions, you know? Like people say, oh, well, you know, tell me about how you had this idea for, you know, fill in the blank, a novel, whatever, a book. And it's not so much the idea. Like ideas are a dime a dozen. I mean, everybody has ideas all day, every day. Ideas, ideas, big whoop. The thing that's interesting is, okay, you've got the idea. How do you develop it? You know, because like I say, ideas are like air. For example, the idea for The Time Traveler's Wife was the title. I was sitting at my drawing board. I was drawing, which, as we all know, is a totally different thing happening in your head. It's not verbal at all. And this phrase popped into my head, so I wrote it on the paper, you know, on the drawing table. Immediately thought, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. So you've got a time traveler and you've got a wife. And who are these people? And what's it like to be the wife? Because obviously that's not quite as active as being the time traveler. And, you know, what are their names? What does she do for a living? What does he do for a living, for that matter, since he's probably not getting paid to time travel? And on and on and on. It's the questions that you feed the idea with. And every time you answer one of these questions, it shuts down one whole batch of possibilities and opens up something else. And as you keep doing that, you know, if you do it for long enough, years, you eventually end up with a book, an opera, a painting, whatever it is. When were you aware that you were doing that? Part of going to art school is sitting through innumerable critiques. The critique process is like that. You know, why did you decide to do it this way? What about that way? What about this other way? What if you do it backwards? People who are really good at critiquing, they listen to what you're saying, you know, which is usually what you're trying to do. And then they look at what is in front of them, you know, what they're getting from what's actually there. And they're trying to reconcile what you thought you were doing and what's actually happening to see if yeah. that matches at all. And if it didn't match, but in an interesting way, that's worth talking about. 
Is this a way that you look at your life in general? Is ask is approaching things with a, a questioning viewpoint? Yes, because I mean I'm fairly deliberative about everything. So yeah, I think that knowing how it works and why I'm doing it, and even if I have to come to that understanding after the fact, I mean I don't necessarily know why I'm doing something every minute of every day, but to be able to take it apart later and go, oh, yeah, I see, I get it. You know, I'm not somebody who's ever been in therapy, although maybe that would be interesting, but thinking about what I understand to be the process of therapy, you know, to me it sounds as though what people do is they show up to therapy and get asked questions. How can questions fix your life? You know, how can you understand through questioning I think it's it's a big part of everybody's process, and I think most people don't stop and think about you know the the therapeutic and artistic potential of questions. But this is very interesting because obviously, being someone that hosts a podcast, I am constantly asking questions, and I am the name of my podcast is Eager to Know, so I'm curious. However, I don't apply that in my creativity. I'm not aware of it. And I am constantly coming up with crazy creative ideas that I share with my friends. Some of them happen, some of them don't happen, but none of them are fueled or unpacked by questions. It's like it's coming from inside and it's sort of like being generated. So that's such an interesting way of approaching it. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. Well, hopefully it doesn't stop you in your tracks. Some people occasionally, the minute they start to verbalize to themselves in their heads, they start to kind of, you know, stand still. I want to go back to childhood. Uh, Specifically, I know that that you started creating books when you were young, like six or something. And it wasn't writing books. It was creating books. It, It seems like there's an aspect to your creativity that is tactile. Can you tell me about that? My mom is a quilter and a textiles artist. And when I was a kid, what she was doing was she was sewing and she was making dolls. I could see that grown-ups make things. It just seemed really normal to equate what I was doing with what she was doing, which of course is nonsense. But, you know, there's, there's a straight line from what I was doing to the kind of things she was doing. I was really interested in books from the time I was way before I was able to read. And if you can't read, the pictures are the interesting part. Um, I mean, your your adult is going to read to you, and that's interesting. But the book itself becomes sometimes a beloved object and powerful. When I was really small, I just thought, well, I I will make books. And of course, I did this just by folding up pieces of paper and drawing in them. Uh, but of course, things haven't really changed that much. <laughs> I still fold up pieces of paper and make books out of them. So there's an element to the the books that you're creating, illustrations and picture books. I, I forget the word that's that you're using, illustrated illustrated novels. So that's another part where you are expanding from like traditional, just written novel. Yeah, so, I mean, I do make novels that are just made out of words. 
-hmm. And I've got uh, a few projects where it was just pictures, but mostly I'm interested in combining them. Mm -hmm. And when I was a kid, I thought I was going to grow up and be a book illustrator. Uh, Then I realized that it was almost impossible to make a living doing that unless you wanted to just uh, do picture books for kids, which wasn't actually my main interest. Most of my stuff is actually sort of unsuitable for kids. Mm-hmm. I've seen examples of your work in writing has been either transformed into a different format, like a movie, or there was a book that I you did with your husband where he did the illustrations. What is that like for to have your creative creative stuff being transformed or being extended? Uh, collaborating with my husband, Eddie Campbell, was really nice because, of course, we lived together. And so the stories and essays already existed. And we I just sort of put everything in a big digital heap and said, here, you know, you, you see what you think you can make something out of, you know, what is inspiring to you. What was it like seeing your stories being brought to life in a different way? It, it, it reminded me of when I do a painting and then when I'm doing a show and somebody gives me what they think of it and it makes me see oftentimes in a whole new way. Is it something, uh, it was it a similar process? Yes, because in many cases I hadn't uh, described everything visually very intensively. So a lot of the stories have female protagonists. And of course, if you're writing the first person, you don't stand there intricately describing your own appearance. It, it's sort of funny. There's a there's a cliche in bad writing where the protagonist catches sight of themselves in a mirror and they say, ah, oh, my mustache looks funny today or something. When, you know, it's it's hard to get somebody to do that naturally. And so I had left it a bit vague and so Eddie got to create the physical appearance for a lot of these characters and I mean we'd sit there and talk about it but he would try something on and be like well no yeah he he had some interesting experiences with it and tried out some things and he wanted to do a different style for each story so he was trying to sort of stretch out I meanwhile during that time was working on my novel so I would come over every now and then and go oh wow that looks amazing so for me, it was incredibly painless. You know, just came over to say, you know, yeah, keep going, do more of that. Um, having things adapted in other ways has been kind of all over the charts in terms of how involved I've been, how wonderful it's been, or not so wonderful. Um, the the thing that's going on right now is that Time Traveler's Wife's being adapted by Stephen Moffat into a series for HBO. And I mean, I have very minimal involvement because I can't go anywhere. (laughs) And they're filming mostly in upstate New York. Um, They're gonna be here in about uh, a little more than a month. So I'll finally get to say hello, I hope, and maybe go on set, but. Would that be weird or would that be exciting? No, I think it would be lots of fun, but of course I'll have to get a COVID test. all those things, because, you know, they got to keep everybody safe. Do you know when that's going to be out for people to see that are listening to this? Uh, My best guess is next spring. 
I mean, these days anything can happen, so yeah. who knows, but that's my understanding sometime next spring. Okay. I want to talk to you about that book, that Time Traveler's Wife. Obviously, when you do anything, you're hoping it's going to be successful, whatever that may be. Um, it sounds like that was probably exceeded your expectations. Yeah, just a bit. Okay. <laughs> what does that, what did you learn from that as it relates to planning and setting goals? I hardly plan and I very rarely set goals. Um, my friend Riva Lair and I had a conversation a while back that was pretty funny. She's a painter, an artist who's a very dear friend, and she recently wrote a book. And it's a memoir. It's called Gollum Girl. Uh, anyway, we were talking about goals and what we thought we were going to get done in this lifetime and what we actually managed to get done. And, and both of us felt like we had kind of, uh, we had done the things that were on our list of things to do. You know, we had had shows, we'd been collected by museums, we got books published. And, uh, and that's all super, except for then we looked around and we went, oh, what now? <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not meaning to say that I can die tomorrow and that's okay or anything, but more like the bits you can strive for, or plan for, are kind of over with. To proceed at this point, to, to go higher up in any way, in some ways it's really mostly at the behest of other people now. Okay. Um, like if somebody wants to give either me or Riva a MacArthur, hi MacArthur people, um, that's not up to me. <laughs> um, the kind of things you get when you get into the rarefied air are not up to me. The things I can do is just keep making work. What I actually started to do was to to dial it back. I realized that I was spending too much time chasing around being out there in the world and that what I needed to do to get my work done was to retreat and sit quietly and practice all the things, all the good habits that you have to have in order to actually get any work done. You, we spoke about this on the phone and I think you referred to it as the value of the pause. <laughs> yeah. If you can't hear yourself think and you're not thinking anything new, probably you're, you're too out there. Most people who make stuff realize that they've got to be quiet occasionally or even most of the time in order to make it work. I, I can relate to that. I know a lot of my creative ideas come from when I go running, which is where I am alone. I am listening to music, but I'm focusing on my breathing and I'm in this weird mental state and uh, that's where, in, and it's sort of like a medit meditative state. And uh, that's where the biggest creative ideas and the biggest solutions to problems come. If I have a big problem that I, that I can't figure out, like I'll go run six miles. And miraculously, the ideas come. And it sounds very similar to what you're saying. It's like being quiet. That For me, that's, that's me being quiet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listening to a lot of different people talk about this, running, walking, uh, anything to do with water. Being out in nature. Nature is helpful, but cities are helpful. I mean, just going for a walk and not talking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, motion, um, repetition, the kind of thing where your hands are doing something, but you don't 
need to think about it. You're not performing brain surgery, you're driving or throwing a pot on a wheel or knitting or, you know, anything where something is going on, but your brain has sort of disengaged. I mean, earlier when I was talking about having the idea for Time Traveler's Wife, while I was drawing, I mean, that's drawing is a great activity for having ideas that are not related to the drawing that you're actually working on. Yeah. Another one is chopping vegetables for cooking because (laughs) I, I go to Whole Foods and they have these containers filled with chop celery. And I'm thinking that's why would you buy chopped celery? Like chopping celery and onions for cooking is one of the best parts of cooking because it's exactly what you just said. It's you're doing something and your hands are busy um, and your mind is able to think about other things, but it's distracted enough that it's sort of anchored Mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. There's a book called Daily Rituals. What it is is it's a, a couple of pages on 200 and some different artists, composers, scientists, poets, all kinds of creative people. And it's just talking about their day, what they did. You know, they got up at X time of day and they ate this for breakfast. I mean, Balzac apparently would have like 20 cups of coffee a day and died of heart failure. (laughs) But um, the prevalence among this group that's in the book of uh, heavy amphetamine use. Hmm. And, you know, Lord knows I don't recommend that. (laughs) But I've noticed that almost I don't know too many creative people who are not caffeine dependent. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm definitely one of them. Yeah, me too. I'm obviously not an expert in this area because I've never written a novel, but it seems like something that would take a significant amount of time and you kind of have to stay with the thing, the same thing for a long time, for a long duration. What what do you have to say about that? Do you have any, any, what are your comments? I've always been fairly slow. Um, I can get a lot done in a small amount of time But typically, I work on these vast projects that are lots of these small accomplishments accruing. Um, The book I'm working on right now, I started in 2012. I expect to finish it maybe by the beginning of next year. So that would be 10 years, (laughs) almost. By the time it's edited, it will be 10 years. The thing that took the longest was a book called The Three Incestuous Sisters that I worked on for 14 years. But the thing that I tell myself that makes this okay. um, Okay that it's taking a long time. Okay that it's taking a long time. You know, okay that I'm not, you know, Dickens flipping out, you know, Bleak House in 10 seconds. I went to grad school at Northwestern, and one of my professors was Ed Paschke. He took us uh, to a studio, which was uh, on Howard Street. He had six paintings going at the same time. And somebody asked him, well, how long does that take? Why, why all at once? And he said, well, I could do a painting in a week, or I could do six paintings in six weeks. And if I do the six paintings in six weeks, I will have time to have more ideas about them. That, that you know, his point was, there's no rush. If you tackle this thing over a long period of time, and I've added to this in my head, you know, not only will you have more ideas, but more things will happen to you during that time. The world will change. I mean, in yeah. the time that I've been working on this novel of mine, it's a sequel to The Time Traveler's Wife. It's set somewhat in the future, and I originally set out to write about climate change. Well, in the time since 2012, I mean, there's been significant um, 
speeding up, it seems, of the climate change, but also there's been like all this political craziness and a pandemic and so many huge issues that if I had been able to finish this in five years, I would have missed. I wouldn't have had the chance to write about that or think about it in this book. And for a book that ends in 2098, it would be a major oversight to not have things like the pandemic right. or the current wildfires and all the all the political crazy. So I thought, well, all right, you know, this is this is obviously why it's taking me so long cuz the world hasn't resolved and my ideas about what's going on in this book are also unresolved because of it. There's a kind of tension between what I want to talk about and what I understand. So it sounds like what he your big lesson was don't be afraid of extending out the project plan, so to speak, because it could ultimately benefit you. Yeah, and I think what he was also talking about was synergy. You know, it's not just these six paintings will take six weeks. It's about these six paintings in the studio together, in some ways, are kind of one painting because they're all going to bounce off yeah, each other. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay, that's a great that's a great lesson. I like this idea of synergy because I can definitely relate to that where a creative project can be influenced by other things that are happening in my life that seem completely unrelated, but it will ultimately feed in. You know, I come from a background, I studied like math and science and engineering. So that is a very different way of using your brain. And I've only been doing this creative work for the past 10 years. So I'm always surprised when these things happen where things that seem completely unrelated uh, to what I'm working on creatively will somehow will affect it. It's such a, it's a surprise to me and it's kind of amazing. Although I think that the sciences and certainly mathematics, I think that the way they're taught in schools perhaps doesn't uh, help people to understand that they too are creative processes. It takes such a long slog in mathematics before you get to the wild and woolly creative parts. And I am not a mathematician, but my father, who is an engineer, assured me that there were creative aspects to math, and I can see it. You know, when when you read people who do math at a very high level talking about what they do, they talk just like artists. And so I think that maybe our culture, for heaven only knows what reason, keeps separating us out like that. I mean, for a while I was dating a scientist and we would go to these parties and, oh my God, the projects these people were doing, the experiments were wild. I, I remember having dinner once and I said to somebody quite, you know, blithely, oh, so what are you working on? And he was describing this insane experiment where he was teaching goldfish to run mazes through sense of smell. I was like, whoa, okay, great, you got a grant for that. That is amazing. And, and it wasn't just frivolous, he was trying to prove something, but right. um, <laughs> Lord knows what it was. The hard sciencey people and the supposedly not so hard art people, I think the sciencey people are astonished when they realize what the artists are up to these days in the way of very complicated and huge projects that take engineering and chemistry and every other kind of thing. And then you turn around and you watch uh, these marriages in the sciences between disciplines Everything is getting more and more interdisciplinary, and the more it does that, the more you start to realize that it's a bit of a lie, really, that, that there is a, 
hard separation between the left and the right brain. You know, they were really always talking to each other. And there's this, there's this point where everything touches and just goes boom. Yeah. And, and that's, where, that's where all the ideas are, not just the art ideas. Yeah, I feel like this reveals itself to me in like advertising. Oh, yeah. Where it's all about right, right brain, left brain you know, completely because you're dealing with the psychology of humans with the mathematics of looking at data and analytics and patterns and behaviors. And then you have like the visual creative or copywriting and it all kind of comes together. In order to make anything really big, you have started to need lots of people. You know, you, you, you can't just have the lone genius in the studio anymore. Yeah. You've got to have teams of people because it's become so complicated. Yeah. But still, you know, teams of people are good. Why not? Yeah. Um, I mean, I just sort of, you know, sit there typing by myself, but eventually it'll take editors and my agent and all sorts of people at the publisher. And I mean, I don't see it, but I, I see the result, you know, how I make something and it sort of spreads out and eventually you're watching it on HBO. Yeah. Which is pretty wild. That is wild. <laughs> this is the second time you and I met because the first time we met, we were supposed to do this interview. We're in a studio right now. We were supposed to do it at the Harley Clark house, which I went to. Am I calling it the right thing? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I went there. It was amazing. Um, and the acoustics were echoey, which was going to be incredible. And then I had a technical issue with, I brought the wrong cord. So now we're here in a studio. But uh, why don't you tell listeners about that uh, home? The Harley Clark Mansion in Evanston, Illinois, for more than 50 years, or ex actually exactly 50 years, was the home of the Evanston Arts Center. And I first came there in 1978 as a high school student to take an etching class. And I continued taking all sorts of classes. I eventually ended up teaching there for 15 years. And I loved it very, very much. And eventually the Evanston Arts Center moved to a different building and the house stood empty and nobody knew what was going to happen to it. And the city of Evanston tried and tried. And uh, at one point it came very close to being torn down, but valiant activists in the community uh, got the um, question put on the ballot. There was a referendum as to whether the House should stand, and more than 80% of the people who voted voted, please let it stand. And so, uh, in the meantime, my MFA program at Columbia College, uh, which was for book arts, had closed in 2019. So I created a new group called Artists Book House, and we made a proposal to the city, and we were selected, and it is so amazing. <laughs> and they gave us keys. It was incredible. <laughs> and so for the last three months, we have been going over there, and we have been cleaning and taking all the garbage out of it and just uh, revving up to try to raise the money that we're going to need to renovate it. And when it is all renovated, it's going to be a center for literary and book arts, and you'll be able to take classes in not only writing, but also bookbinding and papermaking and printing. 
and there will be writers coming to give readings, and there will be all sorts of lovely group activities like, you know, zine fests and comics days and all sorts of stuff for kids and for grown-ups. We're going to have a cafe. So all the things, coffee and books, all in one beautiful building. And, and making books, making reading books. books, writing books, everything. Yep, all the things. And so the only thing standing between us and that beautiful reality is a unbelievable mountain of money. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we do have a website. And um, if anybody wants to go and look at the website, if you fall in love with it, get in touch with us. And uh, you can volunteer, but you can also give us money. And I will put the, you'll find the link in the show notes. Well, Audrey, thank you very much for hanging out with me today. Well, it was so fun. Thank you, Rick. My name is Ricky McGuckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast.